12. Where does it all go? Writing the Music Jolly West's MK Ultra letters were my biggest discovery, I thought. If there were an answer to that question of questions, how Manson got his followers to kill, I felt it had to be there. I marshaled my energy in the hopes of discovering that they'd crossed paths, or that Manson's enormous success in creating the family had some debt to the CIA's mind control techniques. Even if I turned up nothing, I thought considering Manson and West in parallel was a worthy effort. Theirs was one of the great non-sequiturs of the 60s. Manson, the ex-con, the Hollywood striver, the oversexed, unwashed guru who'd been discarded from society had used LSD to collect and reprogram his followers. In the summer of love, he walked the same streets and frequented the same clinic as Jolly West, the upright Air Force officer, the world-renowned psychiatrist, the eloquent hypnotist who wrote to his CIA handler that there was no more vital undertaking conceivable than to dose unwitting research subjects with LSD and replace their memories. Both men were moralizers, hypocrites, and narcissists, and both were determined to make their presence felt in an America they felt had gone rotten. On the stand at his own trial, Manson said, Is it a conspiracy that the music is telling the youth to rise up against the establishment? It is not my conspiracy. It is not my music. I hear what it relates. It says rise. It says kill. Why blame it on me? I didn't write the music. On some level, he was right. I resumed my work on my proposal, feeling that I had enough to make even hardened skeptics doubt themselves a little bit. Though it took me years to get all my words in fighting condition, I finally finished in 2005. It came in at a whopping 80,000 words, as long as many actual books. On the merits of the proposal, Penguin Press agreed to publish the book. I was elated, and more than a little relieved. I hadn't known whether any respectable publisher would vouch for a project that mentioned Manson, Jack Ruby, and CIA mind control in the same breath. Penguin's support was vindicating and the advance payment it offered was more than enough to let me tie up my reporting. The complete manuscript was due in early 2008, a little less than three years away. Now all I had to do was finish my reporting and write the thing. The following year would be the 40th anniversary of the murders. I'd only missed my premiere deadline by a decade. But that had been a magazine story. This would be a book. I had big plans for the money from my advance, which was more lucrative than I'd allowed myself to imagine it could be. I upgraded my computer, junked my old Acura, and bought a used 85 Volvo for 400 bucks. Everything else would go back into the book. Although my friends advised me to buy property and take an exotic vacation, I didn't even consider it. I had at least three years of rigorous reporting and writing ahead of me. The money could help me accomplish what had been too costly or labor-intensive before. I hired two research assistants to help me get organized. 
They transcribed the endless hours of taped interviews I'd amassed. More than 200 cassettes by then. Most of their 90 minutes completely filled. They helped me type out the handwritten notes on my 60 legal pads and 30 notebooks. And some of the passages I'd highlighted in some 300 books. Most of my papers were in one of the 190 binders I had. And yet I'd allowed a half dozen stacks of unfiled documents to grow to about four feet high apiece. At least they were separated by subject. Reviewing the massive material record of my work was unsettling. I was rediscovering the fragments, micro-obsessions, and niggling questions that had tugged me onward when I began my reporting. Many I'd simply forgotten about. Others were unresolved and probably always would be. But a few started to tempt me again. Now that I was finalizing everything, I had to be sure I hadn't missed a lead. If a doubt sat in the back of my mind long enough, I added it to my to-do list. Soon it was dangerously long for someone with a book to write. One of the most basic problems I'd had over the years was tracking people down. Many former members of the family had gone to great lengths to make themselves unreachable. They'd changed their names and severed ties with anyone who might have known about their pasts. At least the celebrities who'd said no to me once upon a time could be reached through publicists. Now I was looking for people who'd gone off the grid. I didn't necessarily want to force anyone to speak to me. But what if someone in the family remembered Jolly West? Or Reeve Whitson? Or any of the shadowy figures I'd investigated? What if, like the detective Charlie Gunther, they had something they'd wanted to get off their chest for 30 years? Some of my hostile interviewees had thawed when they saw that I didn't have the sensational tabloid-style agenda that fueled most reporting on Manson. So I also hired a private detective, a retired LASO deputy nicknamed Moon, who worked out of an office in Arizona. To this day, I've never met him, though we've shared thousands of emails and calls. Moon found people and police records I never could have turned up on my own. He'd participated in the LASO raid of the Spawn Ranch, and he reached out to other retired cops, urging them to speak to me. He also schooled me in skip tracing, the art of finding people who don't want to be found. Before long, I was paying to access digitized cross-directories and databases, including one called Merlin that required a PI license to use. Moon took care of that for me. Between the two of us, Moon and I located just about everyone who'd hung around with Manson. Most of them scattered up and down the West Coast. I added them to my interview list, along with the usual mix of cops, lawyers, drug dealers, researchers, Hollywood has-beens, and congressmen. The extra help freed me up to do what I did best, dive into the archives. I had about a dozen places I needed to visit to fill in holes in my paper trail. There were old LAPD and LASO homicide detectives, district attorneys who'd offered to show me their stuff, files on the family from courts, police departments, 
parks departments, and highway patrols that I'd persuaded the state of California to let me see for the first time. And personal files from reporters who'd long ago tried to investigate the same stuff I was after. Most of them hitting the same dead ends. My to-do list was now as long as it had been in the heaviest days of my reporting. And sometimes, behind my excitement and anxiety, I could feel a lower, deeper dread. Even if I could strengthen the bridge between Manson and West, I didn't have a smoking gun. Some fabled needle at the Spawn Ranch with Jolly West's fingerprints on it. Or a classified memo from the Los Angeles DA's office to the FBI. I worried I never would. The evidence I'd amassed against the official version of the Manson murders was so voluminous, from so many angles, that it was overdetermined. I could poke a thousand holes in the story, but I couldn't say what really happened. In fact, the major arms of my research were often in contradiction with one another. It couldn't be the case that the truth involved a drug burn gone wrong, orgies with Hollywood elite, a counterinsurgency-trained CIA infiltrator in the family, a series of unusually lax sheriff's deputies and district attorneys and judges and parole officers, an FBI plot to smear leftists and Black Panthers, an effort to see if research on drugged mice applied to hippies and LSD mind control experiments tested in the field. Could it? There was no way. To imagine state, local, and federal law enforcement cooperating in perfect harmony with the courts backing them up? It made no sense. What I'd uncovered was something closer to an improvised, shambolic effort to contain the fallout from the murders. I couldn't walk myself through the sequence of events without tripping on something. I was a lousy conspiracy theorist at the end of the day, because I wanted nothing left to the realm of the theoretical. I was sure that at least one person had a better idea of the truth than I did. Before I went delving into any more archives or darting up the coast to confront former family members, I had to return a phone call I'd been putting off for years. I had to talk to Bugliosi. My Adversary Back in 1999, Bugliosi had told me, if there's something about my handling of the case, anything at all, that you had a question about, I would appreciate if you would call me to get my view on it. I'd promised to hear him out, imagining I'd circle back in another few months. Now seven years had passed, and I had so many questions that it took me weeks of preparation just to remember all of them. If I was reluctant to pick up the phone, it was because I was about to engage with a man who went to criminal lengths to protect his reputation. I've already mentioned Mary Nicewender, the reporter who told me that Bugliosi was terribly dangerous. He'd sent an emissary warning that he knew where her kids went to school and implied that it would be very easy to plant narcotics in their lockers. And I knew that Bugliosi had been indicted for perjury as a result of his prosecuting the murders. As mentioned earlier, he'd leaked information about Manson's hit list to a reporter and had threatened professional consequences for his co-prosecutors if they told anyone. 
Those turned out to be two of the milder incidents in his quest for self-preservation. In 1968, Bugliosi fell into a scandal kept under wraps by the DA's office until 72, when he was running for district attorney of Los Angeles. He lost the election. He'd stalked and terrorized someone he was convinced had carried on an affair with his wife and fathered his firstborn child, Vincent Jr. As cliched as it sounds, Bugliosi suspected his milkman, Herbert Weissel, who was married with two children. Weissel had left his job in 1965, eight months before Vincent Jr. was born. Bugliosi was sure that Weissel had quit because of his transgression. The evidence must have been in Weissel's personnel file at the dairy. He made anonymous phone calls to Weissel's wife and then to Weissel himself, demanding him to release his files. The couple began to notice strange cars circling their block after dark. They changed their phone number, which was already unlisted. Two days later, they got a typed letter postmarked from L.A. You shouldn't have changed your phone number, it said. That wasn't nice. Eventually, Bugliosi's wife, Gail, approached the Weissels, revealing her identity in the hopes that she could arrange a detente. The Weissels told her that her husband should be getting psychiatric help. She told us that she'd tried many times, but that he wouldn't do it. They later testified in a civil deposition. She'd taken paternity and lie detector tests to prove the child was his. But he still harbored doubts. I know he's sick, she said. He's got a mental problem. The couple became so frightened that they stopped allowing their children to take the bus to school. They hired a lawyer, and after a mediation, Bugliosi agreed to stop harassing them and to pay them $100 for their silence. They refused the money. In 72, with Bugliosi on the ballot, they decided it was their civic duty to go public. Their tormentor aspired to the most powerful law enforcement job in the city. They told the papers of his year-long harassment and intimidation campaign. Enlisting his well-documented talent for fabrication, Bugliosi retaliated, telling the press that Weissel had stolen money from his kitchen table seven years earlier. Weissel sued him for slander and defamation. It wasn't a tough case to win. In depositions, Bugliosi and his wife swore they'd only been worried about the alleged robbery of their home. The Weissels proved otherwise, bringing in witnesses who exposed the Bugliosis as perjurers. Soon it came out that Bugliosi had twice used an investigator in the DA's office, his office, to get confidential information about Weissel, claiming he was a material witness in a murder case. Fearing the disclosure would cost him his job, Bugliosi settled out of court, paying the Weissels $12,500. He paid in cash, on the condition that they sign a confidentiality agreement and turn over the deposition tapes. No sooner was the milkman imbroglio resolved than Bugliosi fell into another fiasco, again abusing his connection to the criminal justice system to straighten it out. His mistress, Virginia Cardwell, the single mother of a five-year-old, told him she was pregnant. It was his. With visions of public office still dancing in his mind, and helter-skelter on the eve of publication, he ordered Cardwell, a Catholic, to get an abortion. 
She refused. But after Bugliosi threatened her and gave her money for the procedure, she lied and said she'd done it. He wasn't about to take her word for it. He got her doctor's name, called him, and learned that she'd never been to see him, after which he headed to her apartment and beat her so savagely that she suffered a miscarriage. He choked her, struck her in the face several times with his fists, threw her onto the floor, pulled her up by her hair, and threatened to kill her if she had the baby, saying she wouldn't leave the apartment alive if she lied to him. I will break every bone in your body. This will ruin my career. Bruised and battered, Cardwell gathered herself and went to the Santa Monica Police Department, where she filed a criminal complaint. The cops photographed her bruises, and then, evidently, did nothing. That evening, an eagle-eyed reporter spotted the incident on the police blotter and wrote about it in the next day's paper. Bugliosi returned to Cardwell's apartment that morning, this time with his secretary. The pair held her hostage for four hours until she agreed to tell the police she'd filed a false complaint the previous day. Bugliosi assured her he'd use his contacts in the DA's office to make sure she was never brought to trial for the false report. He and his secretary used Cardwell's typewriter to forge a backdated bill for legal services, telling her to show it to the police. He listened in on an extension as she called to turn herself in. The dispatcher said they'd send a patrol car to get her. He vigorously shook his head, and Cardwell told the dispatcher she'd be fine getting in on her own. The dispatcher sent a car anyway. One of the detectives who'd seen Cardwell that day, Michael Landis, told me Bugliosi and a couple of his associates answered the door and tried to discourage us from talking to her. We were persistent, and we did see her, and she was pretty well banged up. Cardwell claimed that the bruises were from an accident. Her son had hit her in the face with a baseball bat. She'd only blamed Bugliosi because she was angry that he'd overcharged her for legal advice concerning her divorce. This outrageous charge, even though false, can be extremely harmful, Bugliosi told police. Cardwell's brother persuaded her to file a lawsuit against Bugliosi. Bugliosi's story fell apart before the suit was even filed, and he settled with Cardwell in exchange for her confidentiality ensuring, he hoped, that his lies to the police, fabrication of evidence, and obstruction of justice would never see the light of day. He was wrong. The Virginia Cardwell story hit the papers in 1974, when his opponent in the California State Attorney General's race, Joseph Bush, caught wind of it. Bugliosi lost that election, too. Because of his clout in the DA's office, he was never prosecuted for assaulting Cardwell. Landis, the detective, called him a whiny, snivelly little bastard, saying I wanted to prosecute the son of a bitch. All of which is to say that I approached Bugliosi with extreme caution. And at first, he refused to grant me another interview. In the intervening years, he explained, he'd heard from two unnamed sources that I'd done terrible things in my private life. He refused to say what these things were. I knew I'd done nothing wrong. 
I told him to go ahead and expose whatever it was he had on me. It would never hold up to scrutiny. I added that I'd amassed a lot of documents, including some in his own hand that raised questions about the integrity of the prosecution. But he was adamant. No interview. Furthermore, if my book defamed or libeled him, he would hold me liable to the greatest degree of the law. You don't want to be working for me the rest of your life, he said. I think you know what I mean. He hung up. And then, ten minutes later, he called back. He wanted to repeat the same conversation we'd just had, to pretend like we were having it for the first time. His wife Gail would be listening in on another extension as a witness, so I wouldn't misrepresent what he'd said. You want us to repeat the conversation word for word like it hadn't already happened? I asked. Yes, he said. Or you know the essence of the conversation. It was a ridiculous exercise. I agreed anyway. I wanted to keep our lines of communication open. And I had a morbid desire to see how it played out. I told him I'd only do it if I could tape the call, so I'd have a witness too. He agreed. Listening back to it now, I'm amazed. We really did it. We had the same talk again, with occasional corrections. No, Vince, you said you'd sue me for a hundred million dollars, not millions of dollars. Every few minutes, Bugliosi would make sure that Gail was still listening. Yes, she'd sigh, I'm here. As for the papers I had, he told me, documents may be accurate, but it doesn't make the document itself truthful. And even if he wanted to sit down with me, which he didn't, because of the terrible things I'd done, he couldn't, because he was absolutely swamped. He didn't even have time to go to a Super Bowl party that some prominent people had invited him to. I kind of doubt that, under any circumstances, I'd be willing to give you an interview, he said. But if you send me a letter specifying everything you want to talk about, or the essence of what you want to talk about, there's an outside possibility that I may find the time, or make the time. I never sent that letter. Experience had taught me that the longer I stayed silent, the more agitated Bugliosi would become. Despite his protestations, he really wanted to know what I'd write about him. A week later, he called and said that his wife had persuaded him to sit down with me. The interview was on. Bugliosi Redux And so we returned to that sunny day in February 2006, when Bugliosi gave me a stern dressing down at his home in Pasadena, his wife looking on phlegmatically. That was the day he announced himself as my adversary and issued a 45-minute opening statement. His kitchen, now his courtroom, as he mounted the case that he was a decent guy who'd never hurt anyone in the first instance. He would retaliate in the second instance, in self-defense, or to get even, or to get justice. As if to prove that point, he kept threatening to sue me, making it clear that he wouldn't tolerate any allegation of misconduct. He spoke so quickly and with such a flurry of hyperbole and legalism that I could hardly rebut one of his points without three more rising up to take its place. Just as my encounter with Roger Smith had, 
My interview with Bugliosi lasted for some six hours. And I came out of it with little more than a list of denials and evasions. But at least Smith had given me wine and pizza. Bugliosi gave me only vitriol. Before we met, I rehearsed my questions with an actor friend who stepped into Bugliosi's shoes. We developed a plan on how best to deploy my findings and parry his denials. I brought binders full of documents and carefully highlighted passages from Helter Skelter so that I could refresh his memory if he claimed not to recall certain particulars from the case. But right away, Bugliosi threw me off. Ask me your hardest question, he said at the outset. And so I started with everything I had on Terry Melcher, suggesting that Bugliosi had covered up for him and that he'd been much friendlier with Manson than had been revealed. It was the wrong move. I'd intended to build to this moment, and now I was leading with it, giving him every reason to take a contentious tone. Pulling out a passage from Helter Skelter, I showed Bugliosi what he'd written about Dean Morehouse, the member of the family who, according to the prosecutor, stayed at the house on Cielo Drive for a brief period after Melcher moved out. That's not true, I said. He never lived there after Melcher moved out. He lived there the summer before, off and on with Melcher. I showed him that Dean Morehouse was actually in prison when Bugliosi had said he lived at the Cielo house. I forget what you're telling me, Bugliosi said. The matter of where and how, I forget that kind of stuff. Thirty-five years ago, I've gone after a million things since then. There's a lot of errors in the book. He'd authored it with a co-writer, and he'd been too busy running for district attorney to fact-check every last word. This may have gotten past me, he said. I'm more interested in anything you would have that would indicate that I may have misled the jury, because I don't believe that happened intentionally. I took out the pages in Bugliosi's own handwriting, notes from his interview with Danny DiCarlo, one of his main witnesses, who'd said that Terry Melcher had visited Manson three times after the murders, contravening what Melcher had said on the stand. This was after the murders, Bugliosi clarified, reading through his own notes. Are you sure about that? You wrote it, I said. He confirmed they were his notes and read them again. You have to know, Tom, that when people are talking to you, they garble things up. My God, they tell a story. But this is not ambiguous. You write, definitely saw Melcher out at Spawn Ranch. Heard girls say, Terry's coming, Terry's coming. And you make a point of writing down that it was after the August 16th bust. There's nothing ambiguous about when it was. I'm being a hundred percent candid with you, Bugliosi said. This is new to me. I'm not saying I didn't know it at the time. Don't get me wrong. But I absolutely have no impression, no recollection of this at all, he sighed. What's the point? How does it help me with the jury? I thought it impeached Melcher's testimony, which had been essential to the case. It made him a dirtier witness, I said, because he had a relationship with the murderers after the murders. I showed him the sheriff's interview with the family's Paul Watkins, who remembered seeing Melcher on his knees, on acid, begging for Manson's forgiveness at the Spawn Ranch, again, after the murders. 
didn't it suggest some kind of complicity? Bugliosi leveled an intense stare at me. I was not trying to protect Terry Melcher, he said. Why would I try to deceive the jury on something that the opposition had? I turned over everything to them. But Paul Fitzgerald, the defense attorney, said he never saw any of that. He said he was shocked, I explained. He may have forgotten about them himself, Bugliosi shouted. Look, if I'm going to try to hide them, I throw them away. Why wouldn't I throw them away? Everything that I had was turned over to the defense. Everything. He didn't say he didn't remember. He said he never saw it. Bugliosi scoffed. Terry would never have associated with these people if he thought they committed these murders, he said. If he did go out there afterward, it wasn't because he was complicit. I'm investigating this case. I'm handling all the witnesses. Things could have gotten past me. But you've got to ask yourself this question. What could I possibly gain? I told him how Stephen Kay, his own co-prosecutor, had reacted to these documents. If Vince was covering this stuff up, what else did he change? Bugliosi gave a brittle laugh. Oh, Jesus, that is so laughable, it's just unbelievable. Just absolutely unbelievable. That I'd cover up that Terry Melcher had gone out to Spawn Ranch after the murders. It's just so extremely insignificant, it wouldn't help me at all. But it wasn't insignificant. And from his reaction, I could tell he knew it. These pages rewrote the narrative of the case. That's why Melcher had threatened to throw them from his rooftop. That's why Bugliosi would sue me if I printed them. Around and around we went. Bugliosi said, When Terry was on the witness stand, did he testify that he never saw Manson after May? Yeah, I said. So that's perjury. So you're saying that Terry lied on the witness stand? Still, he didn't see the point or pretended not to, until I read him his own closing argument, he refused to recognize that he'd even used Melcher as part of the motive for the murders. He'd said in his summation, indirectly Manson was striking back at Terry Melcher personally. By ordering a mass murder at Melcher's former residence, Manson obviously knew that Melcher's realization that these murders took place at a residence in which he lived just a couple of months earlier would literally paralyze Melcher with fear. If that were so, why did Melcher go out to visit Manson at least three times afterward? All Bugliosi could say about the matter was that it must have slipped past me. To accuse him of conspiring with Melcher was mind-boggling craziness. What about Reeve Whitson, the mysterious figure who'd helped gain the testimony of Sharon Tate's photographer friend, Sharo Katami? Did Bugliosi remember Whitson? Oh, possibly, he said. The hours ticked by, and whatever I threw at him, he deflected. The replacement of Susan Atkins' attorney? I showed him the memos. I don't remember any of this stuff. Manson's mysterious move to San Francisco, which violated his parole, even though Bugliosi had wrongly written that he requested and received permission for it? I can't even remember that. How about the warrant for the massive August 16 raid at the Spawn Ranch? 
Bugliosi had asserted incorrectly that it was misdated. I don't know where I got that, he said. I wanted to ask you about Roger and David Smith, I said. I wasn't about to get into the matter of Jolly West. I knew it'd be met with a blank stare. Who are they? I gave him my spiel on the paramount significance of Manson's year in San Francisco. That's good stuff that you've come up with, he said. Are they mentioned in my book? Barely, I said. He was unfazed. Must have gotten past me. To present our back and forth in granular detail would be excruciating. Reading through the transcript never fails to give me a headache. Suffice it to say that the subject of Terry Melcher always riled him up. Anything and everything else, he hardly cared about. If it didn't involve him directly, he had no use for it. He reiterated that he was the fairest prosecutor in the land, and that a hefty hundred million dollar lawsuit awaited me if I suggested otherwise. This is when he fell into his refrain about the man in the mirror. Because he was ethical to an unprecedented degree, he could live with the sight of his own reflection. He didn't understand how I could live with mine. Manson himself had a fondness for the same phrase. I am the man in the mirror, he said. Anything you see in me is in you. I am you. And when you can admit that, you will be free. When Bugliosi and I finished, at last, he confessed that he was sometimes obsessive and overreactive. Gale had told him he might have a psychiatric disorder. But he'd done nothing wrong, and he didn't want his admittedly frenetic behavior to color my impressions of his conduct as a prosecutor. It was a rare moment of self-awareness, probably the last I ever saw in him. The aftermath of our meeting was a series of alternately coaxing and acrimonious phone calls at all hours of the day and night, conveying a thinly veiled ultimatum. I could drop anything negative about him from my book or fear his wrath. If I published such outrageous, preposterous, and unbelievable lies, the lawsuit was a foregone conclusion. Before the litigation, though, would come the letter, a cri de cour to my editor at Penguin, with the publisher and president of the company in CC. It would be very, very, very long, Bugliosi warned. He'd take six, seven, eight hours to write the first of many drafts. He didn't want to do it. He'd gladly tear it up if I called to apologize. There is nothing to decide here, Tom, he continued, sounding like a used car salesman. It's so damn easy. When I declined for the last time, he said, we should view ourselves as adversaries, and told me to expect the letter. Now that Bugliosi was my sworn adversary, his next move hardly came as a surprise. The smear campaign. First thing next morning, I got a panicked message from Rudy Altabelli, the flamboyant talent manager who'd owned the house on Cielo Drive. We hadn't spoken in four years. Please give me a call so I can understand what I'm talking about, the elderly Altabelli said. I still love you. Altabelli had gotten a disturbing call from Bugliosi. 
The first thing he wanted to know about was your relationships with young boys, he told me when I called back. As Bugliosi remembered it, Altabelli had told him years ago that I dated 10, 12, and 14-year-olds, Altabelli said, adding that he knew it was a lie. I'm gay, and when Altabelli and I became friends, I was dating someone younger. But he was 29, not 12. At that time, Bugliosi was in regular communication with Altabelli, who felt he must have told him I was dating a younger guy. But then and now, Bugliosi knew he meant a young man, not a kid. You're creating something that isn't so, Altabelli told him. I'm not going to talk to him anymore, Altabelli said, ever. Bugliosi kept calling for weeks. In just one morning, he left seven messages on Altabelli's machine. He wanted Altabelli to sign a letter saying I'd lied about Melcher. Altabelli refused. At least now I knew the terrible things about me that Bugliosi had referred to. They were as transparently false as I'd suspected. I could see why he'd twice been sued for defamation. In his long career, Bugliosi had lied under oath. He'd lied to newspapers. He'd lied to police and investigators from his own office. Now that I'd called him a liar, he was plenty willing to lie about me too. His letter arrived at Penguin on July 3, 2006. It had taken five months to write. It was 34 pages, single-spaced. And as it turned out, it was the first of many such letters. As Bugliosi had promised, copies were delivered to my editor and my publisher, so we could take in its distortions, ad hominem attacks, and vigorous self-aggrandizement as a team. Often referring to me as Super Sleuth O'Neill, O-N-E-A-L instead of O-N-E-I-L-L, the misspelling was intentional, I believe, he'd done the same to his nemesis, Stephen K. and Helter Skelter. Bugliosi claimed that I'd first approached him for the sole purpose of discovering titillating factoids about Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski's private sex and drug lives. Easy to disprove, I'd taped the whole interview. He hinted at his allegations of pedophilia and claimed that I'd accused him of framing Manson. Most of all, he attacked the significance, or lack thereof, of my findings on Terry Melcher. Can you see why there is a part of me that actually wants O'Neill's dream to come true, he wrote? So that I can have the opportunity to get even with him and destroy his life more than he's trying to destroy mine? If Penguin moved forward with my book, the publisher would almost assuredly be perceived by the national media as taking a position in defense of Charles Manson, one of history's most notorious murderers. He followed up with letters to all of the family's imprisoned murderers except Manson himself, asking if they'd refute my claims about Melcher's involvement with the group. No one replied. When it became clear that Penguin would stand behind me, Bugliosi sent another letter in 2007, and another in 2008, inveighing against my project and the irreparable harm it would do to his children, especially if, as I'd told him I would, I detailed the lawsuits he'd faced over the years. I'd promised my editor that I'd finish my reporting by August 1, 2006. 
though I may never have hit that deadline anyway. Bugliosi's letter derailed me. Everyone I knew urged me not to respond on a point-by-point basis. But how could I not? I had no intention of replying to him directly, but he'd gotten the best of my inner obsessive. And I spent a while collating all the evidence that refuted his claims. If he did plan on suing me, I'd be ready. In light of his threats, I told him I was now treating everything he'd said to me as on the record. Back in 1999, he'd given me my first shred of new information on the case, telling me off the record that Roman Polanski had forced Sharon Tate to have sex with two other men on tape. Since Bugliosi had detailed this allegation in one of his letters to Penguin, I saw no need to keep it off the record. My fastidiousness distracted me from that looming dread, perhaps best articulated by Bugliosi himself. Where does it all go, Tom? Where does it all go? I thought his apoplexy confirmed that I was on the right track. But I'd have to find the answers without any help from him. And now there was another unanswerable question. Was it all worth it? All the lonely hours in my car, the endless days poring over transcripts at archives from the edge of Death Valley to small towns in Washington and Nevada, begging and battling for police records, studying obscure medical journals and academic papers, filing hundreds of FOIA requests, fielding death threats and promises of litigation. Could I really say it was worth it? Honestly, I didn't know anymore. And this was before I fell into a debt of more than half a million dollars. Digging for Bodies in the Desert Bugliosi had rattled me, but I tried to shake him off. I had a book to finish, or more realistically, a book to start. Whenever I sat down, opened up Microsoft Word, and confronted a blinking cursor over a snowy expanse of white, I found it easy to make other plans. Sometimes I'd eke out ten or fifteen pages, only to recoil at the holes in my story. My theory that Manson and West were linked was tenuous, circumstantial, lying solely in the fact that they'd walked the corridors of the same clinic. Wouldn't it be more effective to argue that the entire prosecution of Manson was a sham, with Helter Skelter as a cover-up? Bugliosi had said he must have missed Manson's San Francisco chapter. But everyone who knew him said he'd never miss it. I had to show that he concealed more, that witnesses besides Melcher lied, that there was an elaborate scheme to misrepresent the facts. Sure, I told myself, that would be better. I'd go back to the trial transcripts, maybe a few weeks here, a spare weekend there while I wrote. Maybe Jolly West didn't even belong in the book. Maybe Reeve Whitson was just padding. Maybe, maybe. I put more effort into begging for deadline extensions than I did into writing the book. And the world kept concocting reasons for me to keep reporting. Toward the end of 2007, a homicide cop named Paul Dosty claimed to have found forensic evidence of at least five bodies buried at the Barker Ranch in Death Valley where Manson was captured in 1969. Dosty's trained cadaver dog had sniffed out unidentified remains in the area, 
As part of a big PR push, Dosti asked me for information supporting the possibility that these could be Manson's long-rumored additional victims. His comrade-in-arms was Deborah Tate, Sharon's sister, who had become a good friend of mine. Their effort garnered national media coverage. Soon the Inyo County Sheriff's Office authorized a dig in the desert. Skeptics liked to ask, what did it matter if the police had taken so many months to bring the family to justice after the murders? Even if they fudged the investigation, they still found him eventually. My answer was always that the family may have used those extra months to continue their murder spree. At the trial, a ranch hand testified that Manson had bragged about killing 35 people. Bugliosi thought the number may even exceed Manson's estimate. The bodies had been buried or staged to look like suicides. Just because the family had never been prosecuted for these killings didn't mean they hadn't happened. If I could put a human face on the death toll, I could say with certainty that we were right to question the official narrative, that the failures of the police, deliberate or not, had a steep cost. Dusty's dig could help me with that. But I already had a lead on a promising unsolved murder from the family's time in Death Valley. In January 2008, motivated by the surge of support for Dusty's work, petitions from Deborah Tate, and my own preliminary reporting, police announced that they were reopening an investigation into this death. This was great news, except when it came to my book. I worried that the renewed attention would compromise my final reporting. Former family members might go back underground after I'd taken months to find out where they lived. The police might flush out information about the unsolved murder that I'd been on the brink of finding myself. I had to hit the road right away. The writing was on hold yet again. A good part of my trip was a bust. I spent six months living out of cheap motels and crashing on friends' couches, racing across the Pacific Northwest to confront family members at their doorsteps, along with a slew of other bold-faced names from Helter Skelter most of whom had never been found. They were not happy to see me. Very few of them agreed to speak to me at all. Several chased me off their property, two with gardening shears. Just when I was starting to think that the trip was a total wash, I made my last big break. I had proof, beyond a reasonable doubt, I thought, that the Manson family had killed a young man in the desert and that investigators had covered it up. What happened to Filippo Tenerelli? On September 29, 1969, a 23-year-old named Filippo Tenerelli left his parents' home in a brand-new Volkswagen Beetle. Tenerelli, a native Italian, had immigrated to Los Angeles with his family in 1959. He had no history of mental illness and no arrests. Tenerelli made the long drive from Culver City to Father Crowley Point, an overlook at Death Valley National Park offering majestic desert vistas. He was there to drive his car over the cliff. But at the precipice, the beetle got caught on boulders, thwarting his suicide. Frustrated, Tenerelli took a pickaxe and a shovel from his trunk and dislodged the car. Then, his fury overpowering his suicidal impulses, he pushed it over the edge. 
The car fell some 400 feet, coming to rest wheels up at the bottom of the canyon. He clambered down the steep, rocky terrain, reached into the car to retrieve his belongings, and cut his hands on something inside, leaving blood splatters on the ceiling. No one knew how Tanarelli spent the rest of the day, or the day following. On the evening of the 30th, he wound up in Bishop, California, 100 miles away. He checked into Unit 3 of the Sportsman's Lodge Motel, where he again tried and failed to kill himself, slashing his right wrist. The cut was superficial, and he covered it with a bandage. The next day, October 1, Tenerelli went to the town's sporting goods store and bought a 20-gauge shotgun, some ammo, a case and a cleaning kit. Elsewhere, he picked up two-fifths of whiskey, two pairs of underwear, a safety razor, and an issue of Playboy. That night, Tenerelli emerged from his motel room when he heard fire engines. The fire department was doing a controlled demolition of a building across the street. The motel owner, B. Greer, was watching, and she told Tenerelli what was going on. He observed the fire for a while and returned to his room. No one saw him alive again. A maid tried to get into Tenerelli's room the next morning. The door was barricaded from the inside. Around noon, Greer's husband and son pushed it in. There was Tenerelli, dead of a gunshot to the face. Police reports concluded that Tenerelli had blocked the door with a chair, put the loaded shotgun into his mouth, and pulled the trigger with his toe. He was lying on his back on the floor, dressed only in jeans, with two Turkish bath towels under his head, possibly to soak up blood, and a bed pillow over his head, apparently to muffle the sound. He'd shaved all of his pubic hair. Some of it was between the pages of the Playboy he'd bought. But when he'd checked into the motel, he'd given someone else's name. With no ID to be found, he was listed as a John Doe. Tenerelli's family filed a missing persons report on October 3. The next day, two hunters spotted his overturned beetle at the bottom of Father Crowley Point and notified the California Highway Patrol. An officer went to look and, noticing the blood on the ceiling, suspected foul play. The Tenerelli family learned that their son's abandoned car had been discovered in Death Valley. For three weeks, the Bishop Police Department tried to ID their John Doe while the county sheriff's office looked for the missing Tenerelli. They never connected their parallel investigations, though they had stations next door to each other in Bishop, and the same coroner's office served them both. On October 30, the Inyo Register reported that the suicide victim had been positively identified as Filippo Tenerelli of Culver City. Tenerelli had been ID'd by x-rays that matched his patient records at an L.A. hospital. But the case was soon pushed from the local papers by an even wilder story. In a remote area of Death Valley, a band of nomadic hippies had been arrested for destroying government property and operating an auto theft ring. In the coming weeks, they'd be charged with the grisly murders of Sharon Tate and seven others in Los Angeles. Although it wasn't reported at the time, the Inyo County Sheriff's Office and the California Highway Patrol did briefly consider the possibility that the family was responsible for Tenerelli's death. According to documents I found, 
Investigators doubted that Tenerelli had died by his own hand. They had evidence linking family members to his death. Their suspicions were obliquely referenced in a Los Angeles Times story two weeks after the family was charged in the Tate-LaBianca murders. The paper reported that law enforcement was looking into other potential family murders, including a motorcyclist killed in Bishop. Six months later, a Rolling Stone story quoted an insider in the Los Angeles DA's office, later identified as Aaron Stovitz, who suggested that the death of a Philip Tenerelli might have been the family's doing. But no one had reported what, if anything, led investigators to their suspicions. In 2007, when I began looking into Tenerelli's death, no one outside of law enforcement had seen documents linking Tenerelli to the family. I started with three people. The mayor of Bishop, Frank Crum, who'd been on the police force in 1969, Lieutenant Chris Carter, currently of the Bishop Police Department, and Leon Brune, the chief deputy coroner in 69 and still coroner of Inyo County. Carter said the records of Tenerelli's suicide had been purged. Only unsolved homicide records were kept indefinitely. Another cop who'd worked the case said he'd seen the records as recently as 1993. Brune, meanwhile, faxed me the autopsy report and his investigation of the death. His record gave me a much clearer picture of Tenerelli's death. But I found some glaring inconsistencies. The story got even murkier when I tracked down the original Bishop Police Department investigative report, which suggested a far more sinister ending to Tenerelli's life. And, perhaps more disturbing, a cover-up of that ending by investigators that continued into the present. Something was wrong. I met Brune at his mortuary in Bishop, where I was ushered into a somber reception area and asked to wait. He was with someone at the moment. That someone turned out to be Mayor Frank Crum, who didn't offer me his hand when he emerged from Brune's office. Instead, he followed me back into the room. He intended to sit in on our interview, whether I minded it or not. As we took our seats, I got out my tape recorder. Crom said he wouldn't allow our conversation to be recorded. Things didn't get much better from there. Crom answered or amended my questions to Brune, constantly interrupting us. I tried to ask Brune about the sketch of the murder scene I'd found among the pages he'd faxed. Why weren't the motel room windows included in the sketch? No mention was made of them in the report. How big were they? When the body was discovered, were they open or closed, locked or unlocked? Crom answered for him. No one could have gotten in or out of those windows. They were too small. Barely ten minutes after we started, Brune shot a nervous glance at Crom and ended the meeting. He had business to attend to. I'd asked him only half of my questions. Crom got me out of the building and followed me to my car repeating that there was no way the death was anything but a suicide. He suggested I was wasting my time. Everything in his behavior said the opposite. The sportsman's lodge where Tenerelli died was long gone. But B. Greer, the owner, wasn't. A spry, 81-year-old widow with a razor-sharp memory, she flatly contradicted the mayor's statement that her motel windows were too small to climb in or out of. 
Maybe even two people at a time could fit through them, she said. Her son Kermit, who'd helped push in the barricaded door of Tenerelli's room, was with us that day. He added that his parents had often punished him by locking him in the same unit. He'd always climb out the windows, he said. And he wasn't much smaller than he was now. And he was a big guy. If I didn't believe him, why not go see for myself? The motel hadn't been demolished, he reported. It had been sold to an alfalfa ranch just outside of town. They picked up the whole structure and moved it out there a few years before. I drove out to Zach's ranch to have a look. Just as the Greers had said, the windows were big enough for two people to climb through at the same time. Andy Zach, whose late father had bought the motel units, told me that all the windows were original. She showed me Unit 3 and let me photograph it. B. Greer remembered when Tenerelli showed up to the motel. He arrived without a car, she said, which was why he had to show her a driver's license, something the police and the newspapers had explicitly said he didn't do. I never would have checked anyone in who came without a car and a license, she said. Without those, she'd have no collateral if there were damages to the property or the customer tried to bolt without paying. She copied the license information into her register, which she later gave to the police. But the cops, Crom among them, refused to believe that the victim had showed her ID, or even that he had a wallet. They kept coming back and trying to talk me out of it, she said, still angry all these years later. It was a wallet with a driver's license, but they didn't want me to say that. Later, I found a registration form from the sportsman's lodge. It had Tenerelli's name on it, misspelled, and it showed that he paid for a 33-day stay beginning on October 1, 1969. The total was $156, paid in full. B. Greer told me it was exactly the same registration form she would have used in 1969. But a couple of things didn't seem right. The customer always filled out the form. Why would Tenerelli have spelled his own name wrong? There should have been a home address and a driver's license number, but neither was there. Tenerelli's sister later confirmed that this wasn't his handwriting. Plus, Tenerelli had a noticeable Italian accent. The man Greer spoke with had no accent at all. Maybe someone had checked in under Tenerelli's name paying for a month in advance to ensure that the body wouldn't be discovered right away. The police reports contained no photographs of the crime scene. They made no mention of any forensic tests, no ballistics, blood splatters, fingerprints, rigor mortis. Officials I spoke to said these would have been routine in an unattended shooting death, even in 1969. There was a lab report showing that Tenerelli's blood alcohol level at the time of his death was 0.3%, which doesn't even qualify as under the influence. But he'd bought those two-fifths of whiskey the night before he died. When his body was found, one bottle was sitting empty in the wastebasket. The other was on a shelf, only a third full. If Tenerelli didn't drink all that whiskey, who did? The documents made me wonder when exactly Bishop Police and the coroner's office had figured out the identity of the John Doe in their morgue. 
On October 17, a radiologist at Washington Hospital in Culver City examined x-rays of the John Doe sent to her by the Inyo County coroner. They were similar or identical, she wrote, to those of a patient who'd been operated on at the hospital after a motorcycle accident in 64. Tenerelli. The Inyo coroner had been notified of the match within 24 hours. So they'd identified their John Doe as Tenerelli no later than October 18. And yet the chief of police had told the Inyo register that the identification came 10 days later, on October 28. The Inyo County Sheriff's Office was investigating the case from the other side. They'd found Tenerelli's total beetle in the desert, and they wanted to know where he'd gone. Documents from their investigation suggested that the coroner's office withheld information from them. When an Inyo detective asked about Bishop's John Doe on October 28, Brune didn't tell him they'd identified the victim nearly two weeks earlier. Had Brune deliberately kept this from the sheriff? Why wasn't Tenerelli's identification shared with the other agencies, or his own family, sooner? I could never ask Brune. Neither he nor Crom spoke to me again. Robert Denton, the surgeon who'd conducted Tenerelli's autopsy, told me he'd never believed the case was a suicide. He only called it that under pressure from the coroner's office. Looking over his own report, Denton said, See where I wrote, this man seems to be a suicide? I wasn't happy with this. That's why I wrote seems. He shook his head. There were bum things going on here. It appeared to him now, as it probably did then, that Tenerelli had been in a fight or dragged before he was shot. In those days, he said, a lot of questionable deaths were signed off as suicides. It was too expensive to investigate. People didn't want to be involved. On the other side... The sheriffs and the California Highway Patrol were looking into the abandoned Volkswagen with blood on its interior. A report filed by one of the sheriff's deputies on October 5 said, From indications at the scene, the vehicle has not been at the location for more than two days. If that was true, Tenerelli couldn't have dumped the car. His body had been found three days earlier, on October 2 and the estimated time of death was between 9.30 and 10.30 p.m. October 1. And yet all the newspapers, working on information from the police, reported that Tenerelli had ditched his car there after a failed suicide attempt. Why did police concoct this story when they knew it couldn't be true? There were clues among the evidence recovered from the scene near the car. Cops found a pickaxe and a shovel with a broken handle, as well as beer and soda bottles, all covered in what was thought to be Tenerelli's blood. Then there was a cache of unused shotgun shells, a loaf of French bread and a package of lunch meat, maps, miscellaneous papers, and several documents indicating that Tenerelli might not have been alone in the car. A meal and laundry sheet from Brentwood Hospital, where he had neither worked nor been a patient, and a Santa Monica bus schedule, which he wouldn't have needed because he owned a car and a motorcycle. The two hunters who'd chanced upon Tenerelli's car had observed someone coming up from the wreck as they climbed down to it, sheriff's reports said. 
There was far more blood in and around the vehicle than the papers had reported. Blood on the fender and bumper. Inside the driver's side door and under the dash. Palm prints in dried blood. Scratch marks going through the dried blood. A lot of blood from just one man who had no noticeable wounds when he arrived in Bishop. B. Greer had told police that when she talked to Tenerelli, he seemed quite natural and told her that he was here to look the area over and possibly find a job. If the coroner's time of death was correct, Tenerelli had shaved his pubes, downed a bottle and a half of whiskey, and shot himself within two hours of that conversation. Meanwhile, memos from the California Highway Patrol suggested suspects for the murder. The group of hippie car thieves they'd recently taken into custody. In Bishop, around the 1st of October, a highway patrolman had stopped a late model blue Volkswagen. Tenerelli drove a 69 blue Volkswagen. And October 1 was the day before his body was found. The patrolman questioned the driver who, like his two male passengers, was a hippie type. Later, investigators showed the patrolman a photograph of the family, including Manson, Steve Grogan, and Danny DiCarlo. He was sure that DiCarlo was the driver of the car. The report continued. Even though Tenerelli was supposed to be a definite suicide, perhaps Bishop P.D. would be interested especially if we can place DiCarlo in Bishop after 9-29-69 and prior to or on 10-1-69. I checked, and DiCarlo was in Death Valley on exactly the dates in question. But there was no indication that the highway patrol had shared their findings with the Bishop Police Department. Records from the Inyo District Attorney contained a morgue photograph of Tanarelli's face, with a note attached. DAs wanted to find another photo of Tenerelli to show to Kitty. The family's Kitty Lutzinger, who'd run away from Death Valley before her friends were caught, and who'd briefly cooperated with investigators. If she told detectives anything about Tenerelli, we'll probably never know. There were no other documents linking the two, and she refused to speak to me when I knocked on her door in 2008. Neither of the officers who investigated Tenerelli's abandoned Volkswagen believed he committed suicide. One of them, the California Highway Patrol's Doug Manning, called the official story a bunch of malarkey. The other, Inyo Sheriff's Deputy Dennis Cox, called it bullshit. Cox was sure the car was dumped in Death Valley after Tenerelli's death in Bishop. He'd been to Father Crowley Point the day before the hunters discovered the beetle and it wasn't there. After the Manson family was arrested for their auto theft ring, one of the girls told investigators that she was involved with Tenerelli, and that he'd been with the family in Death Valley before his death. But Cox couldn't remember who'd said that. When police in Death Valley finally captured the family, they'd been tracking the group's car thefts and burglaries since September 29 at the latest. They might not have known yet that their suspects were killers, but they did know that they'd been stealing vehicles all over Inyo County, with a special predilection for Volkswagen Beetles, which they liked to convert into dune buggies for use in the rugged, desert terrain. One last thing bothered me. The pubic hair. 
If, as police reports stated, Tenerelli had shaved his pubes just before killing himself, and a few strands had been found between the pages of a Playboy magazine, what happened to the rest? The family's Bill Vance had a magic vest he liked to wear that was made of pubic hair, per a report from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office. The LASO report never said where the pubic hair came from. And how could it, really? But I found it relevant that Vance, an associate of Manson from prison, was arrested for stealing a gun from a car in Death Valley on October 5, 1969, the day Tenerelli's car was pulled from the nearby ravine. Coda Out of the Loop In January 2008, Bishop's new chief of police, Kathleen Sheehan, called to say she'd heard about my investigation from Deborah Tate. In light of my findings, she was reopening the investigation into Tenerelli's death. She assigned a homicide detective, David Jepson, to the case, asking me to share my findings with him. Murder doesn't happen every day around here, she said. I was happy to help. For once, I thought my reporting might yield positive results, rather than dead ends and obfuscation. Jepson and I spoke on the phone more than a dozen times before he decided to visit me in L.A. That July, he and his superior, Chris Carter, drove 275 miles to meet with me in the dining room of the Embassy Suites Hotel in El Segundo. During our four-hour meeting, which Jepson recorded, I showed them everything. Both officers agreed that the death was a probable murder and vowed to continue their investigation in Bishop. Carter said he didn't believe in coincidences, and there were too many here. But toward the end of the meeting, they turned off the recorder and made an odd request. Carter asked me to copy the documents I'd shared that day and mail the file to a personal P.O. box in Bishop. The detectives were concerned that their chief, Sheehan, would use this case to get publicity. They wanted to keep her out of the loop on this one, until the investigation was over. I didn't like the sound of that, and I told them so. Sheehan had been the one who reopened the case. We wouldn't be meeting if not for her. Making sure the recorder was still off, Carter said he believed Sheehan would kill the investigation if she found out that it involved a cover-up or even incompetence. And the mayor, Frank Crom, who'd already tried to persuade me to leave well enough alone, would pull the plug if we discover cover-up aspects the detectives assured me they'd prevent any derailment of the investigation, and they promised to share anything new they uncovered. Against my better instincts, I agreed to continue cooperating with them. That was a big mistake. I never heard from either officer again. Through intermediaries, I learned they were telling people in Bishop that their investigation had turned up no pursuable evidence, and the case had been closed. The three of us had discussed people they'd want to interview when they returned to Bishop. I called a lot of those people. They'd never heard from the detectives. In fact, in the six months between the reopening of the case and their visit to me in L.A., they had interviewed only three people. That number never went up. According to the scant record Jepson finally shared with me in 2011, he never conducted another interview after our meeting. 
When I finally got Jepson on the phone, I reminded him that he'd promised to share his findings with me. He said his files were in a storage shed in his backyard. It took him weeks to dig through this shed. Because I kept leaving him messages, he eventually called me back and, sounding triumphant, told me that he'd found one of his notebooks. He faxed me the pages from it. They covered the same period I already knew about, during which he'd spoken to all of three people. Jepson was sure there were later interviews, but he kept searching in his shed and nothing turned up. I had to ask if the investigation had been quashed, as he and Carter had warned it would be if it disclosed a cover-up or incompetence in the old department. After a lot of prodding, Jepson recalled conversations at the police department before their meeting with me. Something to the effect that they weren't going to have people come up here and smear a retired lieutenant's, Frank Crom's, name and smear the department. I knew I had to go to Jepson's superiors, beginning with Sheehan. By then, she'd left Bishop to become chief of police in Port Wyneme, another small town in California. Although she sounded happy to hear from me again on the phone, by the time I drove out to see her the next day, her mood had darkened. Like Jepson, she said the investigation was over, and that was all there was to it. When I explained that Carter and Jepson had said that she craved publicity and should be kept out of the loop, she didn't believe it. I showed her my notes from that meeting, and she accused me of fabricating them. I'd seen these reversals many times before, almost exclusively from law enforcement officials. But Sheehan's was so abrupt, so hard, that I left her office shaken. Whatever had happened in Bishop, I believed she was a part of it. Chris Carter, who'd succeeded Sheehan as chief of the Bishop Police Department, was clearly prepared for my call. He denied everything he'd said to me in L.A. while his recorder was off. I asked for a copy of the tape. He'd be happy to provide it. I knew he'd made his incriminating remarks when the recorder wasn't running, I said. But I still expected to hear the click of the machine going off and on again. I should have kept that to myself. Two weeks later, when I called again, he claimed the tape had been lost or destroyed. Nevertheless, I filed an Open Records Act request with the Bishop Police Department for all files on their reinvestigation of the Tenerelli death. I received a response saying no records had been found. Through all this, I never stopped thinking of Tenerelli's mother, Katerina, whom I'd met in 2008 when she was 94. With one of her daughters translating her Italian, she told me she never accepted that her son killed himself, she believed God had kept her alive to learn the truth about him. But she died at 99, never knowing the answers. Paul Dusty, the detective with the cadaver dog, had no better luck than I did. The sheriff halted his dig in Death Valley after less than two feet of earth had been removed. And now my book was even more overdue than my article to premiere had ever been. Penguin had granted me extension after extension, approving another advance payment to me to keep me afloat. In the meantime, my editor had left the house, and the 2008 recession had editorial departments tightening their belts. Author contracts had once come with implicit latitude. 
Now, with lots of money on the line, editors wanted something to show for their investments, especially when an untested writer had received a significant advance. The 40th anniversary of the Tate-LaBianca murders came and went. It had now been ten years since my report for Premiere was supposed to appear. The magazine didn't even exist anymore. On cable news, my fellow reporters and dozens of my interview subjects showed up as talking heads, discussing the continuing significance of the murders. There was Bugliosi, still hawking helter-skelter, calling the crimes revolutionary, political. I fumbled and fiddled, trying to find a workable structure for the book. Should it begin with MK Ultra, The Night of the Tate Murders? No matter where I dropped in, I tripped myself up with parentheticals and long digressions. There was no starting point that didn't entail a Herculean amount of exposition. I sent in outlines, synopses, addenda, half-starts, revised proposals. None of them hit the mark, and I knew that. I'd come to feel like a prisoner of my own story. Everyone agreed that it would make for an outstanding book. No one, least of all me, could describe what that book might look like, or how it would accommodate a plot that had no end. By 2011, I'd taken so long to deliver that my original editor had come back to Penguin. He proposed bringing on a collaborator, someone who could metabolize my reporting into a cogent narrative. I was all for it. Penguin helped me find an ideal candidate, a journalist with decades of political reporting and many books under his belt, someone with experience and Zangfreud. When he signed on, I felt I could see a lifeboat on the horizon. He wrote yet another synopsis, one that yielded the first unabashedly positive note from Penguin I'd gotten in years. We find this very encouraging. Full speed ahead. That was in October 2011. By December, he'd quit. Our deadline, the last one, was only six months away. And now I was flying solo. After he walked, Penguin offered to buy me out. If I let someone else write the book, completely, I'd receive no more money, no credit, no input, nothing. All I'd get was the portion of the advance I'd already received, and spent years before on nothing but reporting the book. I told my agent to tell them to go to hell. I decided to use those remaining six months to write the book myself. Before he'd even seen my manuscript, my editor warned that there was only a one in a million chance they wouldn't reject it. I typed out pages in furious haste. I tried to be thorough, to be linear. I wrote in the first person, hoping to give readers a sense of what I'd been thinking. And in June 2012, I turned in what I had. 129 pages, single-spaced amounting to 117,228 words. It covered barely the first three months of my reporting. If you've inspected the spine of this audiobook, you've already noticed that the Penguin Press colophon isn't on it. They canceled the book. I like to believe my editor was sorry it came to this, and that he believed in the project. I don't believe Penguin's lawyers shared his sorrow.
They wanted their money back. If I didn't pay up by the start of 2013, they would have no choice but to sue me. I didn't have that money, of course. I'd been living on it, as the publisher had intended me to for years. A few months earlier, I'd been hoping to repay my parents for their loan. Now I was in the hole with them and one of the biggest publishers in the world. In 2012, I became one of a dozen authors Penguin sued for failing to deliver manuscripts. Most were far more established than I was. The lawsuits sent waves of panic through the industry. Even though mine was for the most money, it came half a year later than the others, and so mercifully it didn't make the papers. That was one humiliation I was spared, but I was still devastated. I felt like I'd failed everyone. I had one job to do, and I hadn't done it. Paul Krasner, the journalist who'd warned me that the story would take over my life, was more than right. It had chewed me up and spit me out. I didn't know how I could ever report on anything else now. My agent shopped the book around to other publishers, and while a few were interested in buying the rights, the offers never materialized. Some documentary filmmakers had courted me too, and one, an Oscar winner, went so far as to make some test footage, which he sold as a series to a premium cable station. But there too things fell apart. In all honesty, though, I was the one who backed out of these projects. Inevitably, the conversations ran aground on questions of ownership. Some legal, others more figurative. Whose story was this? How far did you have to step back before you could fit a frame around it? And, of course, where did it all go? I remember a day soon after the deal fell apart. My neighbor, a good friend, was walking his dogs and saw me sitting outside, looking miserable. He invited me to join him. After trying to distract me with pleasantries for a while, he turned the conversation to the lawsuit. Do you regret all this? he asked. Not at all, I said. I shocked myself with my answer, but I really believed it. This has been the most exciting 13 years of my life. There's nothing like the adrenaline rush of catching these people in lies and documenting it knowing that you found something no one else has found. I kept little pieces of cardboard around my office. Sometimes I folded them up and carried them in my pocket. Whenever I started doubting myself, which was a lot, I had a list of bullet points I'd write down on them and read to myself for encouragement. A reminder of what I'd discovered that no one else had. What I knew I had to share with the world like Stephen Kay telling me that my findings were important enough to overturn the verdicts. Louis Watnick, the retired DA, saying that Manson had to be an informant. Jolly West, writing to his CIA handlers to announce that he'd implanted a false memory in someone. The CIA removing that information from the report they shared with Congress. The DA's office conspiring with a judge to replace a defense attorney. Charlie Gunther fighting back tears to tell me about the wiretap he'd heard. People had confided in me. I'd wrested documents from places other reporters had never penetrated. What did it mean? And what would I do with it? When I got back from the walk with my neighbor that day, 
I fished out one of the cardboard squares and read the bullet points again. Each one set off a chain of reminders to myself. People I needed to call. FOIA requests I had to follow up on. A new book on the CIA I hadn't read yet. A retired detective whose files were probably, at this very second, quietly turning to dust in his garage. What else could I do? I kept reporting.